Greetings, NSA Nation, and welcome to your June 2013 edition of Voices of Experience. I'm Theo Andros, and I'll be your host. We kick off this month's edition of VOE with Simon Mannering, one of the world's foremost experts on branding and social media. And by expert, I don't mean a self-proclaimed expert. No disrespect to the self-proclaimed experts out there. You know who you are. I mean a proven game changer in the world of branding and social media. Please forgive the audio quality of this interview. It's not the greatest, and that's my fault. But I promise you, anything lacking in terms of audio quality is more than made up for in terms of content and sheer brilliance. This guy is simply the best at what he does. And this interview is one you may want to listen to again and again. Join me now as I sit down with Simon Mannering. Well, firstly, thanks for the chance to share some of the things that I've learned, you know, as a speaker. My background is in the advertising world. I started off in Australia and then I moved to London, working at agencies like Saatchi and Saatchi and Liga Delaney, and then was headhunted to come over and work on the Nike brand at Wyden and Kennedy, and I did that in Portland for four years. And then I was Worldwide Creative Director on Motorola through an ad agency called Ogilvy. But, you know, I got a little frustrated with the corporate world and I went out on my own and was kind of like the cleaner from Pulp Fiction for five or six years helping brands fix their messaging at the last minute. And then in 2008, I happened to read the transcript that Bill Gates gave at the World Economic Forum, his creative capitalism speech. I read the transcript to the speech and he said the private sector needs to help build a better world. And I felt that was an important message and I committed to writing a book. It took three and a half years because I had no idea what I was doing. And then it came out in June 2011, and through everyone's support, it was a New York Times bestseller, and it was voted Best Marketing Book of 2011 by Strategy and Business. And that really led to the speaking world and hosting my own We First conference, and now launching an online corporate training program. Is it fair to say, then, that a, a large driver of your success as a speaker has been the success of this book? I think so. You know, I would love to say that this was all premeditated, but it wasn't. It really just came from a place of passion, in that... I was at a point in my life where I had young children. I was at a bit of a sort of crossroads professionally because I didn't feel challenged. And I really, ultimately, I think I was looking for meaning in my life. And the book was a way to put my shoulder behind my passion and really get some alignment between who I am and what I do on a daily basis. And so the book was really about how you use storytelling and social technology to make a contribution to the lives of others. And that really was selfish in a sense because that then gives you the fulfillment that you're looking for. Because I think like many of us in life, we try and be the person with the big title or the big salary or the shiny award. And you realize that's ultimately not what's going to fulfill you. And being able to share that message as a speaker has also, you know, indulged how I enjoy the performance aspect of it, but also allowed me to get the message out there and really communicate with so many more people that I never would have been able to reach. Well, now, you've had the good fortune to grace some of the the, uh, the largest stages on an international basis. Obviously, the, the book has been a, a large driver to that. Aside from writing a best-selling book, what have you learned about what it takes to be successful as a speaker today on the national stage? Well, you know, I backed into something that I think is absolutely invaluable, and that is you need to be a clearly defined brand. And what I mean by that is I did that because that's what I know how to do. I've been building brands for 20 years. And so I didn't realize that I did something necessary unconsciously. And what I see with a lot of speakers today who just didn't come up through the ranks of advertising, they build a brand either around themselves as an individual or around individual individual tentpole books. But what that does, it creates a fractured brand. You create these verticals in your brand. There's me, the speaker, or there's me, the, the, the author of this book, and then there's the next book. And really, that's dangerous today because it ends up fracturing your community. 
because ultimately now in the social business world, you need to be building a community that's centralized and driving traffic to the same place so that you don't fracture your brand and separate out your community. So I created a singular brand, we first, and then drove everything to that. And by that singularity, it allowed people to kind of put their shoulder behind my message, build awareness of me as a speaker, you know, help me build the reputation, and that ultimately drove my speaking business as well. So I think to be a successful speaker today, you have to build a single unified brand and have a very powerful message that you communicate consistently. Can that brand be built around the speaker individually, or does it have to be built around their message? Well, I think, you know, this is a choice that everyone faces, and I think traditional media rewarded the celebrity brand. You know, much like Hollywood or television, you know, these television shows were built around the individual, and so we copied that in the business world or the speaker world, and we built these celebrity brands, whether it's Martha Stewart or whether it's Anthony Robbins or whether, you know, whoever it might be. Today's marketplace is different for one reason. Never before in human history has media been in the hands of citizens and consumers. Why is that important? Social media has given them a voice. And that shifts the relationship between you and your listener in the audience or your customers from a monologue to a dialogue. So in the past, the conversation was, aren't I great? Listen to what I'm saying. You should listen to me. And you didn't really wait for a response from other people because they couldn't answer back. But now you've got this two-way dialogue going on, in which case the nature of the conversation needs to shift. If you just go in there and say, it's all about me, well, then they'll shut down very quickly as they would at a dinner party. But you need to actually reach out to them and say, how are you? What are you interested in? Did you get value out of this? What do you think of this question? And the way I talk about this in the book we first and, and you know, a lot of the work we do is you need to shift from being the celebrity of your customer community to being its chief celebrant, in which case I would suggest the most powerful platform for a speaker today is to build their brand around a values proposition. And to give you a concrete example, in my case, instead of building it around Simon Mannering, build it around the values behind a we first world. And that has two benefits. Firstly, you frame your brand in terms of a benefit to other people. So in terms of the dialogue that's going out there, you now going on in the marketplace, you're going to be meaningful to the people that you're talking to. But secondly, ultimately, a lot of speakers want to build a business that they could either sell or they could expand. And if that business turns on your name, if you don't show up, it disappears. So that makes it very hard to sell. But if it turns on a larger platform, ultimately, you can be the spokesperson for that platform, but you can also plug in other speakers and trainers and authors and experts underneath that platform, which adds value over time, allows you to aggregate communities, and ultimately, if you did want to sell it, it wouldn't turn on you being there. And ultimately, it's an exit strategy for a lot of speakers. That's critical. Yeah, so you mentioned a moment ago about becoming the chief celebrant of your community. Ex- expand on that. What does that mean, Simon? Well, for a long time, it was all about me. It was all about us, the individual, the person who was, in this case, a speaker. And that was because we had media, which was all broadcast by nature. Whether you had, whether it was television, print or radio, you would speak and that one message would go out to a lot of people. But now media has changed. It now goes from one to one to many. So we're reaching out to somebody, for example, on Facebook, we post a clip from one of the speeches we did, or we post a photograph for some speaking engagement, or we share something about a book that we've done. And ultimately, the power of this media is that we hopefully inspire them 
to share it with their network. So instead of one to many, it's one to one to many. If you reach out to your community, always celebrating their interests and framing your message in terms of the benefit to them, then you all have a chance of inspiring them to share it with others. But if it's only talking about yourself, you're the celebrity, that's the only reason to have a communication, you're very unlikely to unlock the power of social media and other mobile tools to actually build your reputation, build your business, and ultimately your bottom line. What is it that you found to be effective in getting your community to want to share that message? You know, more than anything, rather than being the specific details or the specific topic or the specific piece of data or insight that you may have as a speaker, it's the come from. If your vision is large enough that people recognize that you're trying to do something important, and if it's distilled and distinct enough and specific enough that they really see that there's something of value here, and it's, and it's communicated consistently enough that they see that there really is a brand story here that they can share with confidence, then people will want to share that. I mean, if you look at any research, whether it's Edelman's Trust Barometer Report, which talks about global consumers and what they want now, or any millennial study, or even, you know, the desire within corporate audiences that we all speak to that brands want to tell a story that makes them relevant and meaningful to their consumer base or customer care wants to relate to their customers now in a way that shows that we care about them. It's the come from, it's the message you're telling. It's the fact that you're actually interested in the well-being of others as well as yourself that's so powerful. And that's why I say the future of profit is purpose not because we've suddenly all grown a conscience and are well-intended, but because if you look at the reality of the marketplace that we're living in, in which consumers have their eyes glued to smartphones and they're communicating tirelessly and sharing their lives on social media, the expectation of your audience, whether they're sitting there physically in a room or they're watching a video of you doing a speech online, is that you're interested in their well-being as well. You're interested in a dialogue. You're interested in the community well-being and global well-being. Because ever since 2008, there's been so much distrust in business outright, in the motives of politicians and and business leaders. And really, the consumer is now informed by the internet. They are media savvy, thanks to social media. And they are so fluent in new technology, thanks to intuitive technology and all the stuff that we all now use. So that you put all that together, it's a very different audience. It's a very different listener today than it was even three or four years ago. And as speakers, if we want to not only connect at an emotional level, which is our our sort of core challenge, but if we want to inspire them to amplify our brand and drive business for us, we have to share our message in the right way. Now, Simon, you've done a lot of work on the consulting side, working with large organizations on how to use social media, combining storytelling with social media. How did you personally use social media to build your brand? Well, you know, the first thing I did was, and I think this is critical in launching a successful book or a speaking career, is that, you know, I built a community. And the way I did that was I started blogging. I had no idea what I was going to blog about. But almost like journaling, you know, you sort of work out what you care about through the act of writing. And over time... Oh, back up, back up, back I'm sorry, that's a great point. Can you back up and say that again, Simon? Well, a lot of people don't understand what their purpose is, or they don't realize what they care about. And that's for a very simple reason. You can't read the label from inside the jar. It's very hard to see yourself 
in which case when you externalize yourself when you journal and today, by today's you know equivalent that's blogging you start to see what you write about on an incidental basis but you start to see themes develop within that and for me it was very much what i now call sort of we first values like how do we serve the collective interest as well as the individual interest and so i started blogging and then i started commenting and reaching out to other influencers in the space who cared about the same thing and I did that for about a year, and I built a community of around, you know, 20,000 Twitter followers and, and, and so on. But this was, you know, 2008, 2009. But then specifically, when it came to the book launch, I had a 300-page book on a new vision of capitalism and how to use social media for branding. Now, that's not necessarily going to be a popular book. And so what I thought was, how do I leverage the dynamics that are now driving the marketplace to actually be a demonstration of what I'm talking about in the book. And, and I was kindly asked to do a TEDx San Francisco talk two days before my book launch. And any author will tell you, two days before your book launch, all you want to do is lie down and cry because you're so exhausted. You've expended all your resources, financial, emotional, energy-wise. And the last thing I wanted to do was speak in front of 1,200 people and Googlers up in San Francisco. But I realized if I could share my message in a way that was innately shareable, then that could help the book launch. So what I did was I took the book and through the help of some incredible people who volunteered their time, we created a short animated four minute video. And it was just an animated video that laid out the vision of the book. Well, you know, in my 18 minutes of the TEDx talk, I gave the last four minutes to this video and the 1200 people saw it. And that video had 38,000 views within the first 48 hours because I took the message of the book I distilled it down to something innately shareable, which is a short video. I then aggregated communities by launching that video on a much larger community platform called TEDx. And those 1,200 people in the room shared that out and then people in turn shared it. This is a demonstration of distilling your message down and framing your story in a way that you reflect the interests of others as well as yourself, we first instead of me first. And then recognizing that it's not one-to-many, but one-to-one-to-many by reaching out to each of those 1,200 people in the text room and then allowing them to share it with others. And that was a very large part of you know, why it became the New York Times, Amazon, or Wall Street Journal bestseller. This is a, a, a concrete demonstration of what I'm talking about. So, Simon, within 48 hours, you had 38,000 views. 1,000 views, yeah. That's tremendous. Now, is that video still available? If people want to go and yeah. look at it, how would they find it? Absolutely. They can just go to YouTube and look up a video called We Defining Me. We Defining Me. Or you know what they could do? They could just put in wefirstvision.com. 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 You'll see the video and, and you'll see the date it was launched. My book came out on June 7th, 2011. And you'll see the video was posted, I think, on June 4th or 5th. We finished it like at 11 o'clock the night before. That video did not exist. The idea did not exist 20 days before the book launch. And the whole thing was pulled together in 20 days, finished the night before, launched on the day of the speech, and it went from there. So it was the truly the love and support of you know people who believe in your vision that really makes the difference. And then there's, there's a point there, Theo, which is, People were very generous to make this happen. Now, this this was a self-directed, self-interested sort of message. They wouldn't have done that. But when they see that, that someone genuinely has the interests of others at heart, they rally to that vision. There were these come Troika Design and, and Machine Head and Seiko Andrews, the, the German, you know, his voice you hear, were incredible. And that's also the power of a, a sort of celebrant vision. 
it rallies people to serve you and you'll see all the successful viral campaigns out there whether done by non-profits or for-profits it's because there's a joint vision there's shared values there's a common purpose behind them that's what unlocks the power of the dynamics you know created by social media well and simon in fairness it, it rallied them not so much to serve you as it was to serve your message absolutely absolutely yeah if i, if I said serve me then no i misspoke it served getting the message out there. And that's why I talk about not really positioning yourself as a celebrity, but rather building a platform where you're the spokesperson. If you look at my blogs that I've been writing for the last four or five years, I only ever write about what other people are doing. I may share a speech occasionally because they didn't have, you know, didn't have a chance to be in the room, but the message of that speech is always directed towards how others can make a contribution. Here's the dynamic that's so powerful for speakers. When you reach out to somebody else, an individual or a room of a thousand people, and you share a message that serves their interests as well, you create a gravitational force around yourself that is more powerful than any self-promotion could do. What I mean by that is you will support someone else in another company who's doing something. You will support another speaker. You will promote someone else's book. You will attend someone else's event and tweet about it. Their gratitude that you're supporting them will generally inspire them to say something about you or to thank you or to support you in another way or to share a message that you put out there. And if you do that enough, enough times, you'll suddenly see that you've got this whole, you're surrounded by this energy that is also interested in lifting you up. So it's your outreach that drives their support and it's your support of the community that ultimately elevates you. Yeah, I've heard it described as kind of the, the law of reciprocity. Absolutely. And I think, you know, that's timeless in a sense, but I don't think people realize how that is the fundamental dynamic that is driving social media engagement. And just to give you from a marketing point of view, a clear example of this, it used to be Coke is the real thing. And now it's open happiness. So it went from being self-directed to sharing happiness and making happiness possible for the world. So you can see these companies based on the research and also their genuine intent to do good, but you see these companies recognizing that the marketplace wants them to articulate what they care about and frame that story in a way that it serves the larger community. And we as speakers are no different to large brands now. Why? Because we can point our smartphone at, at, at somebody and create a video because we can upload it to YouTube and distribute it to as many people as we want. We can pop a photograph and post it on Instagram or to our Pinterest board. And we have all these media channels that used to be the exclusive domain of monopolies in the broadcast traditional media world and now they're available to us we can no longer be content to be author speaker trainers we actually have to become brands and when you become a brand you have to become a marketer and if you want to be a big brand you need to look at what bigger brands are doing and do that rather than do more of the same that has always worked for other speakers because it's not going to take you anywhere so i mean back to this your video for a moment i've seen the video it's very engaging it's something that you want to watch more than one time it's a very well produced video what would that video have cost if you had to pay for it i think that video is in excess of a hundred thousand dollars worth of time and animation and so on and that's the point with regards to the benefit that having a community-facing message can, can give you in the sense that when I spoke to those people, when I spoke to, you know, Troika Design, they just said, Simon, we love what you're doing, we're in, no questions asked. That was a very humbling moment and a moment of great gratitude that stays with me to today because on a personal level, I put my shoulder behind what I cared about. You know, I'd walked away to some extent from my pre-existing career 
And I said, I want to make a difference if I can, and I'm really going to try. All of us ultimately, you know, whether or not we're getting so much attention on the stage or whether our book is a bestseller or whether people know our name, if it's not fulfilling, it's because you haven't found your true purpose in life. You haven't got to that alignment between who you are and what you do on a daily basis. But when you do, you can unlock not only your authenticity, but also the contribution and support of others. I was once speaking, I, I spoke at the Canada Festival uh, for Ken Robinson, who's one of the most highly paid speakers in the world, most downloaded TED Talk of all time, etc., etc. the educator and author. And I said to him, I said, Ken, I'm such a student of speaking and I have so much respect for what you do. Is there one piece of advice that you would give me from all your years of speaking? And he paused for a moment and he said, speak from your heart. And what he means by that is not just be kind of emotional about what you're saying. What he means is know what your heart is. Know what your mission is, your purpose. What is what is your your spirit been called to do? Get that alignment because when you speak from there, it's completely authentic, and people will watch you on stage and speak and go, "Oh my God, you're you're so authentic!" And it was so impressive and moving and powerful. It's not because you're a good speaker; it's because you're being yourself. I, I also had the privilege of speaking. At a, at a Gucci event before President Clinton, and I actually wrote an article about what I observed in Forbes magazine after his powerful speech at the DNC convention last year in 2012, and it's called The Power of President Clinton and How You Get It. And here's the, the nut of the message. What President Clinton does, and this is again a metaphor for social engagement and how you build your reputation and your, your business as a speaker. President Clinton walks in and he looks at the audience and he starts talking and he looks at someone directly and he looks them directly in the eyes and like any speaker will notice you know that person feels uncomfortable because the speaker has singled them out especially if you're the president and they'll look away and then they'll look back but they'll see that the president clinton is still looking directly at them and he has this look in his eye of sort of saying it's okay and there's a moment of connection and then he moves on to someone else and he talks to as if them as if they're the only person in the room. And they look away or look down and then they look back and he's still there. And the way he's talking is, that it's okay, I'm being open, I'm being vulnerable, I'm talking directly to you as a human being. And then they feel okay and he moves away. And he did that person by person for 20 minutes and then suddenly you felt the whole room go to suck in, like suck in to being totally, totally connected and captivated with him. And what he's really doing there is scaling intimacy person by person by person he is creating a an intimate personal relationship in real time in the room and doing that sufficiently around the room that they all suddenly rally to him and there's two lessons from this one is know what your heart is and speak from that because there's that alignment that congruency that translates to authenticity on stage and the second is when you're speaking from that place connect on a personal level don't be in a hurry don't be in a rush don't be a speaker connect on an intimate level and scale that intimacy and it will transform not your speaking but the experience of your speaking from others and that will transform your reputation as a speaker thank you simon nsa nation invites you to visit simon's website www.wefirstbranding.com and click in the upper right hand corner for his free social branding videos and bonus content it's some of the best material out there and it's available to you and the world for free we now go to atlanta georgia to sit down with csp rob waldo waldman aka your wingman to learn how he has gone from a highly decorated combat fighter pilot 
to one of the most successful speakers on the platform today. I'll give you a hint. Planning and execution mixed with a relentless commitment to constant improvement. Let's hear how he does it. Rob, tell us a little bit about how you see yourself in the marketplace. I look at myself as primarily a keynote speaker. That's my niche. That's my path. And I have a brand. It's known as the wingman. And I always tell other speakers, and I think to myself, niche your brand, not your client. What does that mean? Meaning some people like to go deep and narrow in healthcare or in manufacturing or certain types of uh, industries. I intentionally created my brand, the wingman, and my content in particular to be broad enough to be able to provide value to any organization. I, I speak to national sales meetings. And then I spoke for the leaders of a uh, nuclear power plant who are having a, a shutdown and they need to be safe and on time, on target, and diligent. So that wingman concept of mutual support that I talk about is broad enough to apply to any industry. So you you just said a moment ago, niche your topic, niche your brand, but not your industry. Yeah. Try to be so unique that your, your brand is niched into yourself. You're not just some generic speaker out there talking on customer service or sales or leadership. So when people think of wingman, I want them thinking Waldo, Waldo Waldman. When they think Waldo Waldman, oh, that's the wingman. All right, so let's go back to okay. a second. You said Sorry. the way you've built your business is to not niche within an industry, but to niche, to create almost this, as Joe Calloway would say, a category of one. Right. But there are a lot of people who would say just the opposite, who would say that it's really important to pick an industry and go deep within that industry. What would you say to that? That's great if it works for them, if they have an expertise that allows them to, to present themselves with credibility and depth. With me, I have a background as a fighter pilot and also in sales, so it's it's very broad. So as I developed in this brand and I developed it, it didn't happen overnight, it evolved. I had to ask myself, what content could I create that would apply to almost anybody, anywhere, any industry? So you were intentional about that then. Very intentional because I can tap into multiple markets. But now my brand is very unique because it's based on my fighter pilot background, that motif, that sexy, unique brand. And then I took that fighter pilot thing and then created Wingman. And then when people say, Walter Wallman, oh, that's that Wingman guy. That's how I was able to, to create that persona. But it was also a, a, an, an amazing amount of marketing, writing, how I develop my programs that call back to the principles. It's not just fighter pilot or wingman. What are the things that I talk about that are memorable, repeatable, and that drive action, which is always the key to any any successful program. How do you drive action? So how would you respond then to someone who says, okay, because you're not in healthcare, you don't really know healthcare, or you're not in financial services, you don't really know financial services. How would you respond to that criticism? Okay. So for example, in healthcare, I'm speaking for a hospital, 500 employees at a Parkview in Indiana. They intentionally bring in outside speakers who aren't in the industry for their perspective. What do they bring that they can't learn from a CEO of a healthcare organization or an Accenture who has healthcare professionals in there? So if I'm pitching a hospital or a healthcare organization, I have a Never Fly Solo for Healthcare outline. I have a Never Fly Solo for for food service. I have a Never Fly Solo for entrepreneurs. And I create this outline because I want to give them the beef. When they sit down with the executives, the committee, they're going to look at the video and say, would it be useful to you if I sent you an outline of my content so you see a lot more than just me speaking on stage? Oh, that would be great. I can share it with my team. 
So when I talk about food service, I talk about the vendors, the suppliers, the distributors. Uh, if I'm talking about healthcare, uh, it depends if I'm talking about a healthcare consulting company, a Blue Cross Blue Shield, or a hospital. So I create the vernacular, I make the tie-ins, and it takes a lot of time and work. And I read, I'm on the internet, I look at the, the magazines, I study the industry. And I try to become as much of an expert without becoming part of their institution. I think in fairness, then you really have niched yourself within these verticals, but you just have multiple verticals. The fact that you've created an outline for food services or healthcare or financial services, it, you're not just putting yourself out there as the wingman. You're demonstrating to the client that you have an understanding of their unique business. Absolutely. That's a great point, Theo. It really is. And that's why I think I've been successful, because I just don't fly by the seat of my pants. Well, how do you do it, Wallow? I've taken the time to create the back end. I've written in the healthcare magazines. I'll, I'll, I've written heating and refrigeration news. I've worked with Train, a lot of different uh, heating uh, HVAC organizations. Uh, I, I've spoken uh, for different safety organizations, ExxonMobil. ExxonMobil is a safety organization? Well, not a safety organization. They have a safety, they have a lot of safety meetings. Pardon my vernacular there, Theo. Go, go easy on me, buddy. <laughs> I used to write for Occupational Health and Safety Magazine okay. out of Dallas. I did some, some program for the Incentive Marketing Association and some guy there was from OSHA for some crazy reason. He said, you would be a great columnist. Your, your concept of wingman would be very viable and useful to the safety industry. I said, really? And we got on the phone. He said, how it would relate and I studied the industry. I started writing for the magazine. I got hired with Keywood Construction, ExxonMobil, Shell, a lot of these different groups to speak at their safety meetings. All out of these articles you wrote in these magazines? Because of the articles, because somebody helped me, a wingman, so to speak, who saw something about my content that could relate to his industry. And so then I said, if it could relate to safety, why can't it relate to healthcare or these other groups? So I learned about the industries. I studied them and then developed outlines in my, my programs to, uh, to support that. When I go into that program, I create Wingman for them. I customize it, I learn their business, I learn their partners, their, their challenges and their issues, and meld that into my beef, which is Wingman and leadership and trust and all that good stuff. From the outside looking in, your business has been enormously successful. And for people who see you, th th what they don't see is how much work you've put into it and how disciplined you've been. Talk about the sales side of your business and how you've built your business. The, the key to any great speaking business is the speech. Don't kid yourself. A lot of people think you need to do you know, marketing and advertising and write this and that. If you're a speaker, you have got to come up with the best possible power hour, I call it, so that when you're on stage, you create advocates, you create champions of you, your, the, your concepts, your, of who you are, and then they go and recommend you. So I always fall back on developing the best speech. That's the best marketing I possibly have. All right, but time out. You have a great speech. Yes, you do. But having a, bit, having a great speech is not enough. You don't, have a, you don't have this great speech and you just sit at home waiting for your phone to ring. You've been very strategic in the work you've put into your business. In addition to your great speech, talk about the other things you do. I think it's important to get your, your writing out there uh, via blogs, via newsletters, via association uh, associations that you can write articles for if and when they book you to show your value. So getting out there in the ether, which also helps with search engine optimization. You know, our website is very, very, very important. And everybody knows SEO and pay-per-click and, and, and building traffic to your website is very, very important. So I think the marketing end of my, of my business, assuming all things being you, my, my speech is pretty darn good, right? We need that, like you mentioned. Getting people to my website and then converting them. How do you do it? Writing, 
search engine optimization, which I do. I do pay-per-click. I have an, a lot of referrals because I've been doing this for 10 years. And a lot of people see me and refer me, and I'm on the phone every week. I'm touching base with other clients. I'm connecting with them. I'm, I'm exploring how I can add more value, recommending other speakers. I'm very demanding when it comes to creating a website that converts, i.e., when they come to your site, do they get who you are quickly? Or are they going to say, this is just another customer service sales leadership speaker, and you have to convert them when they go to your site, and then obviously have a great video. What are the elements necessary for people to convert going to your website? Okay. You want them, if they're going to stay on your website, you want them to really go and look at the video and, and test drive the car, so to speak. That's what your video is. If they, don't, if they don't like what they see immediately, you want them off quickly. You're not for them. If they go to my site, they either get me or they don't. It's Why do you care if they're off quickly? Why is that important? Because if they're going to be off quickly, if they feel a fit, they're going to stay on it longer, and they're going to stick around and click around for a while. And you want somebody who gets to your site and understands what you do quickly. And if they're trying to, if confused people never buy. So if they go to your site and say, well, he's just another leadership speaker. I see him on stage or her on stage, and there's nothing about it. I don't get it. I'm gone. I'm going to the next uh, prospect. For me, I can lead with my background. When you come to my website, it says your wingman, a trusted partner in business and life. And at the top, it says motivational keynote speaker and leadership speaker, okay? I'm telling them what I do and the concept of my brand. If you don't need a leadership speaker or motivational keynote speaker and don't like anything about wingman or military aviation, leave now, you're gonna waste your time. But now they're moving down it and they see a picture of me on a stage. One picture is worth a thousand words, right? So they see that, they see me speaking, they're envisioning themselves in the back their mind if they're high on a speaker that that's my program that's Waldo on my stage speaking and then I give a little bit of content I then ask them a couple of questions about their challenges that drive them into what I can deliver so what are some of the questions that you're asking them to see if you're a fit about I, I asked them questions about trust how much more effective their organization would be if their employees truly trusted each other I'm not telling them I am a former fighter pilot, Top Gun decorated veteran, and I graduated the Air Force Academy, and I speak 500 times a year, and I'm this and that, and I'm a CSP. They don't care about that. They care about their problems and their challenges that they're dealing with right now. So if you don't address them up front with specific questions, with things that are going on in the industry that you're an expert in, et cetera, then they're not going to care anymore. So many speakers out there start leading with themselves, and they turn people off. No one cares about it, really. They just care about, I've got these problems. I got a meeting. I've got budgetary issues. We just went through a merger. I'm getting the heck beat out of me from my competition. I've got a problem, and I need you to solve it. So make sure that you give a couple bullet items of what you do that, that you deliver with, if it's on trust and collaboration, mutual support, on driving sales or increasing morale, whatever that is. Fortunately for me, as I can lead a little bit with my background. Like if you go to my website, you'll see me in an F-16. You'll see some pictures of me on Fox News or CNN because a little bit of that sizzle sells. And I'm not saying that it's everything, but if you got it, show it. But it's got to be backed up a little bit. Make sure you lead with your value and ask a couple compelling questions that you think would tie in to the perfect client that you want. This is what drives me crazy. The clients that hire today, the ones that have monies are businesses. And if you're selling to businesses, you have to put business vernacular on the front page of your website and ask them about margins and competition and, and sales and, and revenue and, and all those, those key business phrases. And there's a lot of folks that don't use it. If you're selling to businesses, use some of their language on your website. Well, I think if you are going to use the language, you better understand what that language means. 
What is your desired outcome? When someone goes to your website, what is it that you want to have happen? Okay. Ideally, I want them to fill out that contact page and tell me they have a meeting on a specific date and they're looking to hire me to be their keynote speaker and to set up a call. So how often does that happen? Goodness, you know, sometimes it happens five times a week. Sometimes it doesn't happen for two or three weeks. I've had a slow period and then suddenly things are coming in. I haven't, I don't know the rhyme or reason for it. So it is somewhat cyclical. Very cyclical. And then from the ones who fill out that contact information, what's the conversion rate? The conversion rate, if they have a budget, I would say is 60 to 70 percent. So they've if almost, they have a budget. They've almost self-selected by the very fact that they're filling out that contact information. They've already made a decision that you're a possible candidate for this. Absolutely. And I want them to. And I, I want them, if they're going to fill that out, they're compelled enough to say, I want to get him on the phone. And your j- objective should always be to get them on the phone and to connect with you and to get back with them quickly. Then why not just have them say on your website, call me if you're interested? Because it, it allows me to do some pre-research on them. If they just call me, I'm flying by the seat of my pants when they pick up. But if I have this prospect that comes into a contact page and I know their company and I'm going to Google them, I'm going to go to LinkedIn, I'm going to find out some stuff, and then I will call them back as fast as I possibly can because in this business, speed is life. Because you know what, Theo? When they go to my website and fill out the contact form, form, they're going to yours, they're going to Thurman's, they're going to Sanborn's, they're going to Wingett's. And the person that calls them back first, or more often than not, is going to win. So when I call them on the phone, I'm already prepared. If I call them after 50 minutes, the young man or woman on the other end is going to say, oh my God, I just sent you an email. I just filled out the form on your website. I'm so surprised that you contacted me so fast. I said, well, Mr. Johnson or Mrs. Johnson, in this business, speed is life. I'm only a click away from my competitor. And it's the same thing with yours. So if they contact me on the website, Theo, and they fill out that contact form, I'm doing research. I'm doing intel. I'm already customizing that pitch to them on the phone. And when I'm ready, 15, 30 minutes later, when I'm, I've chair flown it and I've rehearsed how I'm going to talk to them, I pick up that phone and they oh, say... Oh, time out. Back up. You, re- you rehearse how you're going to talk to them on the phone? Absolutely. I'm thinking about who their competitors are. I'm thinking about how I can customize something for them. I'm on LinkedIn seeing who some of her past uh, This is for a phone call. For a phone call, if they're gonna if they're gonna send me something on the pro, uh, on my prospect sheet or, or on my website and say call me, I'm not gonna fly by the seat of your pants. And this is why so many speakers get shot down. This is how I close. This is how I'm able to get sixty or seventy percent close rate. If I get that lead in, uh, it's it's a gold mine for me. And if they have the budget, I will close them. And I'm not confident, but it takes time to prepare. I understand their business, and I call them up and and deliver. So, but that that really is important. I mean, most speakers are just going to dial and ask them if they have a budget and ask if they they need a speaker. But no, I'm preparing and leveraging social media and Google and LinkedIn. So when I call them up on the phone, I'm already customizing. It really allows me to convert a lot more of the prospects that way. You mentioned budget. When in the process does the budget conversation come in? Sometimes if they have a budget and they're, and they're a bigger organization, it very rarely comes up until the end or after we had maybe a phone call or two. If the program is far enough out, maybe four to six or eight months out where I know my calendar may not be booked, I just give them my fee. They either get it or they don't. And you, you want to disqualify right then and there. But I try to hold off on fee as long as possible because I want people to buy in and like my content and say, this is the wingman for us. This is the guy we want speaking before I even talk about budget. You mentioned lead time. What are you seeing with lead time on requests for engagement? Associations, eight to 10 months. Most businesses, most corporations that I speak to are only 
one to two months. I just signed. Uh, I'm, I'm negotiating a contract right now that's three weeks away. We got verbal agreement. I, I'm shocked at how fast it happens. In the last year, you've brought on an assistant. Talk to us a little bit about that. I, I've been speaking almost 10 years, Theo, and I finally brought in an administrative assistant full-time. I had part-timers in the past, and I always felt that that was enough for the contracts, a little bit of the client involvement, et cetera. But until I brought somebody in full-time to embed themselves in my business, I, I was on, on half afterburner. My assistant, Mallory, has totally owned and, and taken over my business. I think she's the CEO. And you hear people talking about it, well, you need to hire a CEO to run your business. Literally, that's how I look at her. So you've been in the business now almost 10 years, and only in the last year did you bring on this full-time person. Should you have done it sooner? Absolutely. I should have done it sooner. It would have so, given me more time. All right. What got in the way for you? What stopped you from doing that? I thought I could do it all on my own in many ways. I mean, I had outside contractors. I had folks that were that were helping me, and I was doing my 10, 12-hour days, and I was just so used to working hard. Now, I talk about the wingman philosophy and bringing on other people in your life, but I wasn't living it in my little business. I had a, a you know real long talk with myself saying, I have to do this. It's allowed me to build my business even more, to create more, and to offer more, so my business has increased tremendously because of it. All right, so one of the things you said is that you've got to develop this great speech, this great presentation, your great keynote, have be fantastic on the platform. What are some of the things that help you get so good on the platform? I believe in hiring coaches and finding folks very, very different from you who can allow you to see your speech or content in a different way. A lot of times what I, what allows me to do well, in addition to the great coaches that I've hired, I work with a bunch of them, and I don't agree with all of them, trust me, and you shouldn't agree and take the advice of every one of your coaches. If it's not congruent to who you are and what you believe in and inside your soul, then then don't don't listen to them. As many times of the year, I, I have many mastermind group meetings. And what I mean by that is I'll invite other speakers, either in Atlanta or when I'm on the road, I connect just like we've connected here, Theo. And I say, why don't you come see me speak? See me speak, learn from the good and the bad. Let's debrief afterwards. What did you see? What are you, what are you seeing that I don't see? And as a wingman, they're often going to tell you what you need to hear and not what you want to hear. Your customer, your the audience members very rarely will tell you what you really need to hear. They'll tell you you're great. They'll give you the feedback. It's the feedback that you don't get is, the, is, is what the worst feedback is. If I want folks in my life, wingmen, who are going to be brutally honest with me and professional wingmen, other speakers who I built relationships with, who could see me on the platform and debrief me, man, that is absolutely so critical. I can't tell you how many times with Dan Thurman, Ken Futch, uh, Joe Calloway, all these folks who've seen me, and sometimes I've done good, sometimes I've embarrassed the living heck out of myself. Really solicit those folks and build a relationship with them, and, and not only are you going to learn from them, they're going to learn from you. And if you don't have a lot of experience on the platform and NSA, you're still going to be able to give them a perspective of you as a human being that you may be able to deliver. Don't think, well, I've only been in this business for one or two years. What can I offer Waldo? Some of the best feedback that I've gotten are from just average Joes and Joannes, other speakers or business people who say, you know, this confused me. I didn't understand this video. You know, I noticed that you kept focusing on this side of the stage and that, and I was very, I was wondering, is there a reason why you do that? Talk a little bit about how to receive feedback. Most of us get defensive. No one likes to be told that they didn't do a good job. I had an individual tell me, don't walk into the crowd when you're speaking, Waldo. Just don't do it. It's not very, it, it, it's distracting. Now, I go into the crowd. I do it all the time. And I got kind of defensive with it. <laughs> you know, I said, wait a minute. I've been doing that, blah, blah, blah. And it kind of ticked them off. We need to be open to the feedback and say, thank you. I'll consider that. That's some really great feedback. And then we have to go back into the recesses of our soul, our speaker soul, and say, does this really fit for me? And we have to also be careful not to look at feedback from other experienced speakers as the word of God. 
You know, if it doesn't fit you, if, if, if it doesn't work for you, then blow it off. Be, be true to yourself. And I find that uh, there's a lot of speakers out there, and even coaches for that matter, who, who tell speakers to do X, Y, and Z, and I just cringe hearing that because it doesn't fit this individual who I'm speaking with. It's not who they are. And I'm like, oh, here's another person, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid that everybody else has drank. Be true to yourself. Trust, but also verify. Get some feedback from other people. And if they're saying the same thing, then you probably should take action on it. All right. What about giving feedback? What advice would you have on how to give constructive feedback? In the military, we'd always say, you know, give some, you know, if you're going to give negative feedback, always follow it up with positive or, or sandwich the feedback, positive, negative, positive. Now, negative feedback is relative. It's more objective, critical feedback, right? One of my English teachers in high school said, be critical without being judgmental. So we could be critical with each other. If you're if you're doing certain things that aren't quote unquote correct according to the eyes of the audience, then or and, and your eyes of you as a professional speaker, then deliver it. I always try to lead with what I liked best about what I saw the speaker do. You lead with that? I lead with what I like best All about right. it. And then I say, are you open to some critical feedback? Are you open to it? Would you like me to share that with you? So I'll get Does that anybody ever say no? Not really, but but it, it gives the verbal contract. It makes sure that they're, they're saying, well, you asked for well, them. Well, it's a little bit of a loaded question, isn't it? I mean, yeah, open so, to... I, 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 yeah, I guess you're right. You're right. It could be. But uh, but I, I wouldn't... I wouldn't sit down and observe somebody's speech unless they knew that they if, unless I had a verbal contract with them before I spoke saying are you going to be open to some feedback that I may give you and it may not be very uh, positive so before they've even given the presentation you've established the expectation that when we're done here we're going to talk a little bit about your presentation is that fair to say yeah and I'll do the same thing if you're going to see, come see me Thea I said uh, if you're going to invest your time to come see me I want you to be brutally honest with me and tell me what you really think because I want to get that because the client won't give it to me and you bring a lot to the table. I, I want you to know beforehand that you can be brutally honest with me. Well, you did say a moment ago that it's very difficult for people to receive brutally honest feedback. How are you able to do it? Well, you have to be willing to have your ego bruised. If people aren't willing to have their ego bruised, they're holding back on their growth. So the bottom line is if you're not open to the feedback that you may not want to hear but need to hear, then you aren't going to be growing as much as you can as a speaker, as a business person, as a human being. So if I'm going to be hanging out with somebody I call a wingman and I'm not going to be open to that feedback, I don't consider him a wingman. I'm not the guy that should be judging your speech. You you seek and crave the, the brutally honest feedback, but sometimes it still just doesn't feel good. Oh, of course. No way. I mean, when I was a fighter pilot in any profession, you, you know, you want to, you got to deliver it with love and kindness, but brutal, honest feedback is what we need in this profession. And and it drives me crazy when you know somebody's doing something wrong and nobody's going to call a spade a spade. I'm like, this person needs this feedback. They don't even know what they're going to do. And if they're not open to it, if you're not open to it, listeners and speakers, to that feedback... Boy, oh boy, you're just you're giving yourself a huge disservice. I have had the most terrible debriefings. I've been embarrassed, but I'm like, okay, give it to me. Bring it. That's how I've been able to grow. And I built relationships with people who are, you know, honest enough to give me that feedback, and it's been awesome. Thank you, Rob. I recently saw Rob speak, and he does exactly what he says he does. The guy craves brutally honest feedback. I've never seen anything like it. It's a big reason why he's one of the big earners in NSA. This next segment features NSA member Rob Shore. Rob is the creator of WholesalerMasterminds.com and is a content-creating machine. His segment, Five Shore Ways, has become a fan favorite and is always packed with specific, actionable content. Let's see what he has to share with us this morning. Rob? 
On this episode of Five Sure Ways, we'd like to share with you some ideas about how to source content. And when I say source content, we're talking about sourcing content for your blog. If you're not blogging presently, we recommend strongly that blogging is a wonderful way to build your platform, build your voice, get exposure in the marketplace, build traffic to your site. Heavens knows that Google loves fresh content and Google loves blogs. So here's five ways to source content. One of the best ways that we source content is through the conversations that we have with our coaching clients. So we, of course, don't disclose intimate details and we don't disclose names, but concepts arise every single time. So virtually every day, we have an opportunity to source new content in our conversations with coaching clients and only recently we've started to formulate what we're calling short take posts sometimes as bloggers we feel that we need to come up with elaborate posts that are hundreds of words long when sometimes and seth godin is a great example of this sometimes very short simple posts 100 words or less can get the message across just as easily Number two is spins on current events. So how can you take a current event that you've read about in the local paper, online, whatever the case may be, and spin it into a post that will draw attention? So one example is cicadas are invading the U.S. here in the summertime of 2013. Why wholesalers are like an invasion of cicadas? That would be a headline that we would run and potentially write around. Number three, commentary on other posts you've read. If you're an avid reader, you obviously have an opinion about things that you've read if your opinion is strong enough and you can tie it back to your source and your content within your own messaging, why not write about it? Of course, we're going to cite the other posts that we've read, probably link back to it because that's the right thing to do, but use that commentary as a launch pad for our content. Number four, update an old post with new info and then bump it forward. Go back into the posts that you have written, figure out which ones can be spit shined, brought current with new information and then repost it with a current date and you'll move it forward in the stream. That's if you're using WordPress. And the last one is interview experts. We've been very honored and very fortunate to have very high profile NSA members come on and join us for Wholesaler Masterminds Radio. And we have over 65 shows in the can and I can tell you that it has been a tremendous advantage to us building traffic in our small tight niche of the wholesaling community, drawing upon the vast wisdom of these guest experts that we have come on. So each show presents an opportunity for us to put up a new post, link back to their site, promote some of their product, and in exchange, my community benefits from their wisdom. Five sure ways to source content for your blog. Number one, coaching client conversations. Number two, spins on current events. Number three, commentary on other blog posts you've read. Number four, update an old post with new information and bump it forward. And number five, interview experts. I hope you'll join me again next time on Five Sure Ways. Thank you, Rob. We now go to the great state of Florida to hear from our 2013 convention chair, David Glickman. David? Thanks so much, Theo. Well, the NSA convention will be here before you know it. Can you feel the excitement through the CD player in your car or through your computer or smartphone or tablet or whatever device you're using to listen to VOE, a device that will most likely be outdated by the time of the convention? But I digress. You might remember in the April VOE, I shared with you some of the wonderful general session presenters that would be on the main stage. CSP Walter Bond. Bruce Turkell, Scott Christopher, CSP Connie Deacon, and Don McMillan. Now that alone would make a great NSA convention, but we've got other general session presenters who round out an amazing main stage lineup. Dr. Bill McGee. Dr. McGee is the founder and CEO of Operation Smile. You have seen their advertisements everywhere. They've provided over 150 
8,000 cleft palate surgeries to children free of charge all over the globe. And Dr. McGee will share his incredible story. We've got Bob Gray, one of the premier memory experts on the planet. He's been in the Guinness Book of World Records, and Bob will talk about how you can develop your own memory techniques that actually work. And we were very fortunate to get Robin Benincasa. You've probably seen Robin on ESPN or CNN or NBC or one of her other many other major media appearances. She is a world champion adventure racer, a San Diego City firefighter, and the founder of the Project Athena Foundation. And Robin will share with us her keynote on extreme performance and why winners win. And our youngest general session presenter ever from Germany, 18-year-old Philip Rierderle. Philip produces a weekly podcast that reaches over a million viewers each year, and he's been doing it since he was 13. Philip will share how to digitally market to Generation Y and show you how to target your customers of tomorrow to set up for the future. And I'm really excited to announce that we have added a special program on Saturday night after our opening reception featuring the hilarious Chris and Tim O'Shea. If you have not seen the O'Sheas before, well, I can tell you that alone is worth the trip to Philly. So again, I'm just giving you a thumbnail sketch of what we've got planned for the main stage. The real nuts and bolts learning will take place in the dozens of concurrent sessions and in the learning lounge, which we'll talk about on next month's VOE. But no need to wait for that. Just jump on the NSA website right now, nsaspeaker.org, and read about all the sessions and all that's going on in Philly, July 27th through 30th at the Downtown Marriott for NSA's 40th anniversary convention. I hope to see you there. Thank you, David. Be sure to visit the NSA website, www.nsaspeaker.org, and register today. If you've ever met our next guest, you know she needs no introduction. She is a productivity expert and a force of nature. Just being around her makes you want to be more productive. She packs a huge punch in a little package. We now go to Doylestown, Pennsylvania, by way of Australia, to sit down with CSP Neen James. You're a productivity expert. Is there a difference between productivity and efficiency? You know, I think that they partner. I think there's a big difference between productivity and time management, Theo. I think a lot of people use the term time management, and I don't think that works anymore. I think time management's out the window. I think time management training programs were designed in the 80s before we had, you know, the wonderful tools like email and iPhones. And so I think that productivity is more than efficiency, but that's an important piece of it. I think it's more than time management. What are the biggest time wasters for speakers? Social media, travel, just wasting time in general. Procrastination is another one. And, you know, procrastination can be putting off that business call that you need to make. I mean, one of the things that we are so fortunate to do is we get to travel the world for amazing clients and get to meet some of the coolest people. But the only way we have that privilege is if we also focus on business development. And I think what people do is they waste time online at the airport when they could actually be using that time to do business development. I mean, it's one thing to be known for something, but it's a whole other thing to make a business out of it and this truly is a business so if people want to make more money out of their expertise they need to stop wasting their time online and in travel now we can be productive when we travel Theo it's just we need to know what to do and sometimes we're so exhausted the last thing we want to do is a business development call so what are some other things that speakers can do to be productive while they travel I think the first thing to do is to really have a purpose for what you're doing so what by that I mean I always know 
On the drive to the airport, what clients I want to call. While I'm at the airport, what proposals I want to finish or what clients I want to call. So for me, I try and actually keep a very present business development mentality when I'm on the road. What I do is I use the trip across to wherever I'm going to prepare for the client. So I might review the presentation, I might learn a little bit more about them while I'm flying, but on the way back, the trip is for myself. So that means I might read, I might catch up on journals, I might be working on something for myself. An easy way to do it is to pre-pack things that you can read, complete, or action. I like to take bits and pieces with me on the road that don't seem to get done in my office. And even though there's a bit of extra paper in my bag, it's nice to be able to throw it out on the other end. I'll often take a book with me that I'll read and I'll give it to someone on the other end of my trip so I don't have to bring it home. So there's things that people can do to stay on top of what's happening in the industry that they're serving. Even our own industry, Speaker Magazine comes on the road with me. So those type of things can make you feel like you're getting things done. It's about making time in time. So making time to do things in the little bits of time that you have. As speakers, we have so many things to get done because often it's just us running our practice. So being on the road is a really great time to get some of those projects completed. What are some tools that you would recommend to help speakers increase their productivity? I think you probably want to look at some of your apps that you're using. So if we started there, Things on a Mac is probably my favorite app for just managing all the different kind of to-dos and then you can synchronize it with your iPad and your iPhone. Uh, Obviously, if you're using social media, Hootsuite is the tool to use because you can manage multiple platforms. I also love the app Note Shelf on my iPad. It becomes like my notebook, I guess, the old days of carrying a notebook around. Lots of people love things like Evernote. So find the apps that really work for you. There's about a gazillion opinions on what apps work best, but I think they are some of the apps that can help you be more productive and get more done. But also, too, there's analog systems as well. So I know of speakers, and I've just started doing this for one of my business development projects, is using the old-fashioned index cards. Remember those? They can be a really easy way to stay on top of everything as well. So what I actually do now is for every proposal that I send, I actually print it out now and I attach a little index card to it and that keeps a track of the activity that I'm doing, which sounds like a really old way of doing, uh, you know, customer management, but it seems to work really well for me because I'm a visual person. So there's lots of different things you can do that are both digital and old-fashioned as well that can help you stay productive. I love pen and paper. I always have a pen in my pocket and some paper and I I love to write things down by hand. Mm -hmm. So one of the most powerful things you can do is if you really want to get super clear every single day grab a post-it note and on that post-it note write your three not negotiable activities that means before your head hits your pillow tonight what are three things that you need to achieve and I find great delight in writing them down crossing them off and then throwing away that post-it note so challenge yourself as a speaker really building your practice what are three activities that are going to get you so much closer to your goals today what are your three not negotiables And that pen to paper is a really cool thing to do. And I have a post-it note with me everywhere. So if I don't have it completed, then basically what that means is I'm going to have to carry it forward to tomorrow, which I do not want to be able to do. So I still love pen and paper. I still mind map all of my articles before I actually write them. And I love to do it on paper. But my iPad, what I found is it's replaced a lot of me carrying a notebook around because I've got every client file now on my iPad using the app Note Shelf. 
And I just got one of those little styluses. So the little pogo stylus is my favorite of all the ones I've tried. And that, in combination with the Note Shelf app, I can still do my mind maps and I can recall every conversation with a client. And it saves me having to take files on the road as well. So before every speaking engagement, I usually interview three to five people from the company. So all of their notes, I put them in my iPad so that on the flight across, I can just review those notes again. So that's a really easy way to make the move. If you still like pen and paper, that's cool, so do I. But if you want to try and make it even more electronic, a simple stylus gives you the same sensation of writing like a pen does. So you mentioned that you have three non-negotiables. Are those just for your business or do you do those for other areas of your life as well? You know, mostly it's my business. Unless, for example, there's been an appointment that I've been putting off that I haven't made. And what I find is if it starts to weigh on your mind, it's worth writing it down because otherwise the brain's going to keep reminding you of that task. When you write something down, it tells your brain that it's safe and that you've got it. So that is an easy way to do it. But for most of the time, CEO, it tends to be my business stuff on the post-it note. Now, I also have a running to-do list and my to-do list is one sheet of paper on the left-hand side is all the work-related items I need to get completed, and on the right-hand side is all the home-related or personal things. So even though I use things on my iPad and that syncs with everything, sometimes physically writing things down is a great way to do a brain dump if you feel overwhelmed or if you feel like you've got some time, and it's a really neat activity. Take 15 minutes, get everything out of your head, personal and work-related, but stick it on one page and then you know exactly where you stand. Now, I take that a step further, and the other thing that I do is I write down beside each task how long I think it will take because often we have this crazy overwhelming to-do list. Sometimes the wrong things make it onto our to-do list. What would be an example of a wrong thing that would make it onto your list? Well, it could be that, let me think, it could be something that I put on my list that really my business manager might be better doing, so I might want to, say for example, I've got to go to Bali in August for work, so I might look online at flights, well that's stupid because that's a waste of my time, but I'm a little bit intrigued about how crazy expensive it's going to be, so I might go online, whereas it would be better to just trust her to do it and say, hey, can you have a look at this and then give me the information. We do things in our practice that we could have other people support us doing. That's a wrong thing to make it on our to-do list. Why do you think we do that? I think it's a procrastination tool. I think we don't want to always work on the things that are going to get us closer to our business because they feel like hard work calling a client, writing a proposal, getting another blog up. I think we procrastinate with little bits of stuff that really avoid doing the work that gives us more money in our bank account. And also more fulfillment. Yeah, for sure. So talk to us a little bit about procrastination and how a speaker can overcome that. I think there's a couple of strategies for procrastination, and we procrastinate for different reasons. I think we procrastinate because we don't know where to start, or the task feels too big, or it feels too hard. We procrastinate because maybe we don't like the person who gave us the task to do, or the client we don't really want to work with. So there's lots of emotional reasons why we procrastinate. I also think that perfection kills productivity, and it's a form of procrastination. So we have this desire to make something perfect before we set it free into the world. Well, that's procrastination, and that's a real productivity killer. But some ways to really overcome procrastination, I think the easiest way to do it is to apply what I call the 15-minute rule. I think 15 minutes is the key to productivity because no one has an hour anymore, but people can create 15 minutes. You can either get up earlier for 15 minutes or you can go to bed later, but you can create 15 minutes. And in that 15 minutes, I would challenge speakers to do something for 15 minutes. Now, could be that you just write the to-do list of what you're putting off. Maybe it's reviewing a proposal that you have to write. Maybe it's 
jotting down some ideas for blogs you've been meaning to write. But 15 minutes is the start. Now, one of two things happens. You either get so into it, you think, man, if I just give it a little bit more time, then hey, it'll be cool, I'll get completed. Or maybe you get 15 minutes into it and think, oh my gosh, holy guacamole, there's too much here to do. But applying your time, 15 dedicated, not multitask minutes, you'd be astounded at what you can achieve. The other thing I would suggest is maybe get yourself a procrastination pal. Now, that's someone you can't, it's not someone you're allowed to procrastinate with. I was going to say, <laughs> <laughs> that should be easy to find. <laughs> but what I would suggest is your procrastination pal is the person who's allowed to kick you in the butt and get you back on track. So I have a couple people like that in my life. If I'm putting off a proposal, I will reach out to them and they will tell me what I need to do and basically tell me just to get over myself and get it done. So is it like an so, accountability partner? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's the same people for, in my life. But for you, it might be someone. It might be, for example, for speakers, they might have a coach or a mentor that they reach out to. That could be someone who helps them get stuff done and stop procrastinating. I think one of the simplest things to do is to totally understand your procrastinating and sometimes stepping away from the task. Go make a coffee, go for a walk. Sometimes that clears your head a little bit to get into it. But we have the ability to procrastinate so much in our industry because it's kind of lonely. And when you think about a lot of the people, the infopreneurs, you know, they know some great information. They're either in their home office or they're on the road or they're in a convention center or they're sitting in a hotel room. We have a lot of opportunities for downtime. And that's why I think it's essential to have this mindset of business development. Always, always be thinking the numbers. What I love about the 15-minute strategy, Nina, is it, it kind of lets you off the hook from the beginning. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's, really, it's much easier emotionally to get your head around committing to 15 minutes rather than saying, i got to finish this entire task, be it writing your book or writing an entire proposal or doing anything. The, the fact that you can just focus for 15 minutes on it seems to make it easier to get started. Absolutely. And honey, I had a client in my mentoring program and I ran a mentoring program for women and she had been complaining to me for the longest time. She was saying, I want to write a book. I want to write a book. And I was so sick of hearing her say she wanted to write a book. So I said to her, just write the damn book, but write it in 15 minutes every day. So we started this project in January and I made her write for 15 minutes every day. And if she missed a day, she had to write for double the time the next day. You know, what was so amazing, Theo. On the 18th of December, she opened her carton of her book with her name on the front because she applied 15 minute rule you can do anything in 15 minutes and what it does is it creates a pattern of discipline and you tell yourself hey i can do this and you show yourself that you can do it next time as well it's the key 15 minutes you can conquer the world Anyone who knows you, Nee, knows that you, you are so productive and so efficient, and it actually almost makes me nervous to be in, in interaction with you because I'm so terrified of wasting your time. What do you do with your downtime? Oh, I love downtime. I think everyone needs to schedule recovery time or re-energizing time because we're brilliant at scheduling activity, but we don't always schedule recovery and re-energizing time. So you actually structure your recovery time. You plan it and schedule it just like you do your other activities. I because I think it's important when you think about the lifestyle we've chosen we've chosen to be away from people we care about in order to serve people and so I believe that those people that we live our lives with are the most significant people to us and we don't have time to do everything we only have time to do what matters so we have to schedule what matters so I plan date nights with my husband I plan my calendar around the important events those things go in my calendar as a high priority 
because unfortunately what I see in our industry is the people we love the most often get the leftovers. We come home exhausted and they see that and yet they need our best energy. So we have an incredible responsibility for the people that we share our lives with. If people are fortunate to have someone in their home with them, they deserve your best. They don't deserve your leftovers. You mentioned earlier about social media being a time waster. Mm-hmm. I was a very late adapter to Facebook. It was with your encouragement that I got on Facebook, but you warned me, be careful. It can become a <laughs> it can be very quickly become a time sucker, I think was the word, time waster, time sucker. What uh, what can speakers do to become more efficient in uh, managing social media better? Social media is a thought leadership strategy. So people have to understand that it can truly, if they take advantage of it, they can connect with audiences, they can share their expertise. So they have to think about it in a way that is twofold. One is professional, which is sharing your thought leadership with the world. And the second is personal and staying connected. So one of the easiest strategies I find is to just, I do a drive-by in the morning. So it's 15 minutes online. It's across all the social media platforms that I'm involved with. And so I love to jump into Facebook and see what my family's doing in Australia or some of the people that we have around the world that are important to us. It's a really cool time to have a look on Twitter because most people are drinking their coffee and seeing what's going on in the world. And LinkedIn, it's a great time for me just to review some of the articles that are being published for the groups that I watch. For me, there's a 15-minute drive-by that happens in the morning. People might want to find the association with an event. For me, it's while I'm having my coffee. So it's a very easy thing to do. I also believe now that there's so many brilliant firms that you can get you to help with social media. So I use a company out of Colorado called Social Connects, and it's fantastic. Fantastic, and they help me manage my social media platforms. So you don't have to do it all yourself. You can invest in getting help with people who can use your content and schedule it. Now, wait a second. You said you do it for 15 minutes. How do you set an alarm? My gosh, 15 minutes can become 15 hours very quickly. I use the either the little clock on my Mac or I have I have been known to set the iPhone timer because I could play on social media all day. People's lives are so fascinating to me and I could spend 15 hours very happily looking at everyone else's stuff, but that's not going to grow my speaking practice. So you're diligent about setting that time, getting in and getting out. You're 15, you call it a 15-minute drive-by. Yeah, most days, not always. Now, are there other... It's far more interesting to play in other people's lives than to attend to my own. <laughs> are there... So are there times that you spend more than 15 minutes? Yeah, of course. Doesn't make it right. <laughs> <laughs> Just being honest. I think one of the biggest challenges for speakers who, who basically are sole practitioners running their own business is, is the act of delegating. Mm. Talk a little bit about how a speaker can identify within their practice the areas where they should be delegating versus the areas where they should be doing the work themselves. You know, I think as thought leaders, there's three things we're responsible for. We need to think, sell, and deliver. That's our three focus areas. We need to think up new content, we have to sell it to people who want to buy it, and we have to deliver it in the world exceptionally every time. Outside of those three things is the running of our practice. And I believe those type of activities are best handled by a virtual assistant or a business manager. So I think that there's a lot of admin type activity that we can outsource. So virtual assistants, I think, are the key for speakers because you're only being charged for the time that you work with them. Now, when I first started working with my virtual assistant, it was just a couple of hours a month. And now she's an integral part of my practice and has become my business manager. So you want to look at the things we do that don't really require us to be either think, selling, and or delivering. Travel, making appointments, 
confirming appointments, sending, you know, proposals out, doing our invoicing, looking after our accounts. These are things that people can help us with. We make great money in this industry and we can bless other people and their businesses by outsourcing and delegating some of those activities. All right, so let me push back a little bit here on the on the delegation. Some speakers have found that by the time you explain to somebody what needs to be done, it would have been easier to do it yourself. How would you respond to that? Short-term thinking. Yes, it will. You've got to invest time to save time. It does take longer to teach someone, I agree. But there's this amazing thing in productivity called leverage. You want to do it once and sell it often. Explain it once and then they can do it often. So don't think like that. Yes, it is going to take time initially to bring some up to speed. I absolutely agree with you. But you're going to have to keep doing it. So if you're doing something more than twice, then there needs to be a system in place for it. Now, the system might be a checklist. It might be a person. But the way to help people come up to speed quickly is to systemize and templatize everything. So we have an operations manual in our practice. Everything's stored on Dropbox. Every template we have so that my business manager can access all of those things. So I agree with you. It feels like it takes longer initially. But that's short-term thinking. Well, and also, whether you used an assistant or not, I think creating those systems, even if they were just for yourself, would make you more productive. Oh, for sure. The more systems and templates you have in your practice, the more efficient you're going to feel. The quicker you can get back to clients and the quicker you can convert those leads into paid speaking engagements. Thank you, Dean. We now go to Herndon, Virginia. Ever heard of it? Well, it's not exactly Pennsylvania Avenue, but it is home to another president, our president, the always handsome and often funny Ron Culberson for his presidential message. Ron? Thanks, Theo. Many years ago, I attended an NSA DC chapter meeting and the guest speaker was Grady Jim Robinson. Grady Jim was a master storyteller. One of the most memorable stories he told was about his relationship with his father, who was the local high school football coach. Grady Jim was not athletic and wanted to play in the band rather than participate in sports. The story was about the tension created when he told his father he wanted to play in the band. Now, I had heard Grady Jim before he came to our chapter, so I was fully expecting a funny morning of storytelling and a discussion of why we need to tell stories in our presentations. But what I got was way more than I expected. Grady Jim did tell a few hilarious and powerful stories, but then he threw up a slide on the screen that outlined Joseph Campbell's analysis of the hero's journey. And then Grady Jim discussed the elements of the mythical hero and storytelling structure. I was totally captivated. And at the same time, I was stunned by the depth of Grady Jim's understanding of the craft of storytelling. On the surface, he seemed like just another funny Southern storyteller. Yet he was showing us a different side of the craft and one he had spent years studying and developing. Now, this is my favorite part of NSA. When we get a chance to see someone not only show us their art, but analyze their craft as well. Most speakers are good from the platform. A lot are decent writers, and many are successful business people. But the people who rise to the top of their game are the ones who really know what they're doing. As I've traveled around the chapters over the past few years talking about adding humor to presentations, I usually refer to the movie Comedian about Jerry Seinfeld's life after his sitcom. Once he finished his television show, Seinfeld decided to discard all of his previous comedy material and create a brand new stand-up routine. The documentary chronicles this process, and it's an excellent movie. When you watch Jerry Seinfeld work on his material, you realize how committed he is to the craft. In one scene, you see him chatting over lunch with several other famous comedians. Then he takes some of their conversations and turns them into comedy bits. But he works the material over and over and over on paper before ever trying it in front of a live audience. 
During another scene, he shows up at midnight at a comedy club in New York City to test 15 minutes of new material. At one point, he can't remember the ending to a bit he wrote, so he's pacing awkwardly back and forth on the stage going, I'll get it, I'll get it, wait a minute, I'll get it. One woman in the front row doesn't know who he is. And she says, is this your first time performing? And the audience like bursts out with laughter. The parallel storyline, though, in this Seinfeld documentary is about another less successful comedian named Orny Adams. Adams is frustrated because he thinks he should be more successful than he is. Yet he won't take advice from the more experienced comedians, nor will he work on his craft the same way Seinfeld does. As a result, he's always angry and can't understand why he can't break into the big time. The similarities between this movie and the speaking business are pretty obvious. Those who work on their craft succeed and those who don't, don't. And when I say craft, I'm referring to speaking, writing, business development, and any other aspect of our professions that requires some sort of skill. As speakers, we're lucky to have so many resources to help us with our craft. Between NSA offerings, our colleagues, and the multitude of books and experts outside of NSA, we should never want for ideas on how to improve. Everything we do in the speaking business can be viewed as both an art and a craft. Sometimes the artistic side is a little hard to teach. But the craft is all about studying the work and grinding it out. And we can all benefit from doing that, whether it's on our own or with the help of a book, a conference, or even a trusted mentor. But when we get complacent and ignore the need to work on our craft, that's when mediocrity creeps in. Grady Jim and Jerry Seinfeld were great examples of people who would not stand for mediocrity. So instead, they continually worked on developing the craft. And the result was, in my opinion, magic. That's what I know. I hope it was somehow helpful to you. Well, that wraps up another edition of VOE. Hey, did you know that VOE is available as a podcast? I didn't, but it is. Go to nsavoe.com and check it out. You can also go to the NSA main website, www.nsaspeaker.org, access the online version of Speaker Magazine. Once there, navigate your way over to the VOE page and click on each interview individually. It's pretty cool. Speaking of cool about the only thing cool about Philly in July is the NSA convention. But not being there would not be cool. So register today and I'll see you in Philly. Thanks to our guests for another great edition of VOE. Thanks to singer-songwriter Kelly McGrath for providing the music for VOE this year. Thanks to all the NSA staff and volunteers who make NSA possible. And thanks to you, the listener, for well listening. And thanks, too, for all the phone calls, emails, and even the letters telling me how much you love VOE. I love hearing it. And I've even received some hate mail regarding the LGBT segment we did in April. It's all good, NSA Nation. It's all good. Still feeling the love. Still feeling the love. And it won't be long before our ship comes in. I said, it won't be long before our ship comes in. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.